With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here's the All-American Merge right here. 10, 20, 30, 40, 30, 20, 10. <laughs> if all the traffic's going 70, you don't come down the ramp at 50 and make a hole. You come down at 80 and find one. <laughs> that no one ever does it let me ha- tell you how you get off the highway exit then break it's not break exit it's exit break that works best for all of us how many of you here uh suck at driving how many of you suck at driving i need i need to see more hands way more hands i need to see way more hands a couple of you are honest uh, a couple of you the rest of you you don't understand Here's a traffic scenario I'd like to ask you about. Oncoming traffic. We, you need to make a left through the oncoming traffic. How much room do some of you need? You only have to miss the bumper of the car that just went past. Some of you apparently need to see the horizon. I've, making a, I've made a left out of the second position many times in my life before. I'm like, okay, he, he could have gone there. He could have gone there. Could have gone there. He's not going here. I am. Boom. Right there. Yeah. I got places to go. Good morning. It's Wednesday, Wasden Wednesday, June the 28th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have No Free Lunch, The Rape of the Mind, Dan Bongino, Donald Trump, and Chapter 2 from the book Seal Team 6. All that and more when I get back. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. And now, there's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. The question is not whether we wish to see everybody as well off as possible. Among men of goodwill, such an aim can be taken for granted. The real question concerns the proper means of achieving it. And in trying to answer this, we must never lose sight of a few elementary truisms. We cannot distribute more wealth than is created. We cannot, in the long run, pay labor as a whole more than it produces. Henry Hazlitt. This is human flourishing brought to the title of the book. My aim in promoting a free and virtuous society is the cause of human flourishing, and yet I do not advance that aim, only falsehood, by pretending that there is a free lunch out there. Once we accept the reality of trade-offs in our understanding of economics, we will not inhibit the cause of human flourishing. We will instead make it actually feasible. And that was, the. Um, there's no free lunch by David Bonson. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. What are the true conservative cultural priorities? Bring back hierarchy. Bring back the admiration of intelligence, morality, and beauty. Bring back single-income households, integration, parenting, the primacy of existence, certainty of knowledge, and universal rights and wrongs. Bring back principled behavior, masculinity, and femininity. Bring back Adam 12, John F. Kennedy, the gold standard, pre-HMO medical care, and non-profit news. Bring back civil service, the term stupid question, arguments and fights, the cultural influence of the church and the Boy Scouts. Bring back the influence of social organizations such as the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. Bring back bowling. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now a little bit of Donald Trump. I will immediately sign a new executive order to cut federal funding for any school pushing critical race theory, transgender insanity, and other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content on our children. As I said, I will keep men out of women's sports, and I will sign a law prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states. Can you believe that? Now, can you believe you have to say that? I'm going to sign a law to prohibit child sexual mutilation. Can you imagine saying that 15 years ago? People would look around. What the hell is, what's he talking about? That's taking place in our country. It's, it's insane what's going on. And that was uh, Donald Trump about uh, child sexual mutilation. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, The Rape of the Mind. Chapter 18. Freedom, Our Mental Backbone. The totalitarian state is continually driving out man's private opinions and convictions. For the police state, thinking is already acting. The inner preparation for action as expressed in trial action, thought, is not accepted. Innate doubt and the trials and tribulations of thought adaptation are denied. 
Inbreeding destructive thought is one way to undermine a community. Not trusting the liberty of thought and free expression of opinion is even more dangerous. The natural destructive desires are repressed to that uncontrollable realm of the mind that may explode more easily into action. The verbal expression of a destructive thought, however, often partly conquers that thought and renders it less potent. Here lies the actual paradox. Condemning antisocial thought, thought not yet put into action, provokes provokes a short circuit of explosive action. Every piece of logic may have its dangerous implications. Inquisitional murder took place in the service of high ideals. If we cannot gamble with the innate good sense of man, a free and peaceful society are impossible. A democracy is impossible. Moral culture begins and ends with the individual. Only the cult of individual freedom, individual possession, and individual creativity makes man willing to curb instinctual desires and to repress destructivity. Man is not only a social being. Somewhere away from the crowd and the noise, he has to come with grips of himself. He has to come to grips with himself and confront his God and nature. In order to grow, he needs reserve and isolation and silence. In addition to his mechanical devices and machines, he needs to get back to nature, to camp out of doors by himself. Somewhere along the line, he has to be the maker of some of his own tools, as a shoemaker or a healer or a teacher. Without being thrown on his own and knowing loneliness, man is dwarfed. He is lost among the waves of overpowering human influence and a sea of coercive probabilities. And that was... Chapter 18, Freedom, Our Mental Backbone, from The Rape of the Mind by Juiced Mirlo, M.D. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, uh, Dan Bongino is introducing a clip of the governor of the state of California, Gavin Newsom being interviewed by Adam Carolla. Gavin Newsom, and what turned out to be a really bad idea from him on his part, decided to go on Adam Carolla's podcast a while ago. Adam Carolla, who takes very little BS from anyone. And Adam Carolla started asking Gavin Newsom actual questions. Gavin Newsom went on the show and he's like, he tried to throw the race card. And black and Hispanics are suffering more than all. And Gavin Newsom didn't want to acknowledge that. It's really strange how blacks and Hispanics are suffering the most in liberal cities and liberal states. So Corolla had a few questions about that. And nuisance didn't know what to do. This is glorious. Listen to every second of this. Check this out. Half of African-Americans in the state of California, roughly half of Latino families, have no access to a checking account or an ATM, things we take for granted. They don't have a checking account. What's wrong with them? And what, but what, well, because they don't, they don't have the resources to sock those things away. Well, why do we have them? Uh, a lot of different reasons, but, but roughly half those families don't. Where do they why do Armenians up? have them? But where they end up is why? in check-cashing places. But I want to know why those groups, why them. those two groups don't have access. Well, a lot of... It, just happens to be that we can so talk they're about. Flawed? No, they're hardly flawed, but they're struggling. Genetics are making flawed. their work hardly. Not ab- absolutely. But, okay, not. so but absolutely do Asians not. have this problem? I mean, a lot of communities have. A lot of whites have these problems. Oh, but so I just, it's not just black and Hispanic. No, but it, but, but why I'm giving you bring up black and Hispanic because the magnitude is ominous. But why so many of them? It just happens to be the just magnitude. That's the way God planned it. Not at all. Well, what happened to them? There are a lot of issues, and with, that the communities are struggling. A lot of why new are they struggling? A lot of, 
lot of different reasons. Lack Spanish of opportunity. Blacks have been here longer than we've been here. Well, we can, we can, we can surmise. What about Asians? The, they were put in internment camps. Yeah, we, in fact, it all initiated out of San Francisco. All right. The Chinese Exclusion Act came so out they, of progressive are they the San Francisco. Are they the chess cats? A lot of, lot of Asians certainly do. Oh, so why don't you, why don't you because them? the only reason why is the magnitude. Of there's the so problem. many more. The magnitude and percentage. But there's no way to figure out how that happened. Africa. We could talk about it. You know what I'm dealing with? I don't want to have a sociological debate. Uh, sure. I why would with you? Have, no. no, here's why. Why would you want to do that? Because the person from the Times wouldn't write good things about oh, you if God. you did that. No, no, that's not the case. Because I want to deal with reality. You want to deal with reality? I want to deal with reality And that was uh, Dan Bongino introducing uh, Adam Carolla interviewing... Uh, Gavin Newsom, back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, since this is Wasden Wednesday, we will be playing um, part one, chapter two of um, Mr. Wasden's book, Seal Team Six. Two. One shot, one sill? A year earlier, I'd been stationed at SEAL Team 6 in Virginia Beach, Virginia. While on standby, I wore my hair longer than standard Navy regulations so I could travel anywhere in the world at a moment's notice without being marked as military. Usually, I stayed clean-shaven. When I deployed with SEAL Team 2 to Norway, I wore a beard, but normally, I didn't like wearing facial hair. Waiting for a call-out, I practiced my skills in a building called the Kill House, used for urban counter-terrorist training and on the shooting range. After standby would come three months in individual training phase when we could go off to school. Bill Rogers' shooting academy, driving school, free climbing, or whatever we put in for. The great thing about being at SEAL Team 6 was that I got to go to almost any of the best schools anywhere I wanted. Training phase was also a good opportunity to take leave, maybe a vacation with the family, especially for those returning from an overseas deployment. Then came three months of getting together for team training, diving, parachuting, and shooting school, each part of training followed by a simulated operation using the skill recently trained in. One night I was sitting in a pizza place called The Ready Room, the same place Charlie Sheen and Michael Bean stood outside of arguing in the movie Navy Seals, talking about golf with my seven-year-old son, Blake, and a playful grizzly bear of a guy nicknamed Smudge. In the background, a Def Leppard tune was playing on the jukebox. We inhaled a pepperoni sausage and onion pizza, my favorite. When on standby, I wasn't allowed to drink more than two beers. In SEAL Team 6, we took the limit seriously. Our drink was Coors Light. Whenever traveling in groups, my teammates and I used the cover story that we were members of the Coors Light skydiving team. Our explanation for why 30 buff guys, most of us good-looking, would walk into a bar wearing Teva flip-flops, shorts, tank tops, and a Spyderco clip-it knife in our front pocket. Every time we walked into a bar, the men started changing their drinks to Coors Light. Then the women would begin drinking Coors Light. Coors should have sponsored us. The cover worked well because... If people asked us about skydiving, we could answer any question. Besides, our story was too preposterous not to be real. At around 19.30 hours before I finished my pizza and Coors Light, 
My pager went off. Trident 0101. A code could mean go to the SEAL Team 6 compound, or a code might tell me which base gate to use. This time, I had to go straight to the plane. My bags would meet me on the bird. Each bag was taped up and color-coded for its specific mission. If I didn't have everything packed up correctly, I just wouldn't have it. On one op, a guy forgot the ground liner to put on the outside of his sleeping bag to keep the water from getting in. His good night's sleep wasn't very good. During standby, we were on a one-hour leash. No matter where the heck I was, I had one hour to get my tail on the plane and sit down ready for the brief. Now, time was already ticking. Blake and I hopped into the car, a silver Pontiac Grand Am, and I drove home, just down the road from the ready room. Inside the house, my wife, Laura, asked, Where are you going? I shrugged my shoulders. Don't know. Is this the real thing? Don't know. And if I did, I couldn't tell you. See you later. That was another nail in the coffin for our marriage, leaving at any time and not knowing when I'd be back. Who can blame her? I was married to the team way more than I was married to her. Smudge picked me up at home and dropped me off at Oceana Naval Air Station's airfield. My eyes scanned the special blacked-out C-130. Some have jet-assisted takeoff, JATO bottles on them for taking off on short runways and getting in the air a lot quicker. A good thing to have when people are shooting at you. If I'd seen JATO bottles, I would have known our destination wasn't going to be good. But there were no JATO bottles this time. I boarded the plane well before my 2030 drop-dead time. The inside was darked out. Under a red light, I made sure my bags were there, made sure they were the right ones, and made a mental note of where they were so I knew where to return when I needed to start gearing up. Three SEAL snipers joined me, Casanova, Little Big Man, and Sourpuss. In the teams, many of the guys went by nicknames. Some guys called me Waz Man. Others had tried to call me Howie, but that didn't stick because I wouldn't answer to it. Sometimes a guy gets his nickname for doing something really stupid. There's a reason a guy gets named Drippy. Other times, a difficult name like Brzezinski becomes Alphabet. A Team 2 friend of mine was called Tripod. Casanova was my shooting buddy. We'd been together since sniper school in Quantico, Virginia. He was the ladies' man. More panties were thrown at him than onto a bedroom carpet. Little Big Man had a bad case of the small man complex, which is probably why he always carried that big-ass Randall knife on his hip. Everybody teased him. Little Man, Big Knife. Sourpuss, the senior man, had zero personality. The one guy in the group who wasn't a cut-up, fun-loving type of guy. He was too interested in getting back home to Honey, his wife, and didn't seem to care about the op or what any of us had going on. He whined a lot, too. None of us really liked him. We sat down in front of a flip chart near the cockpit. Just the four of us. Probably a real-world op. The guy giving the brief was someone I'd never seen before. Someone from Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. He was all business. Sometimes in the teams, there's a little chuckling during a brief. The SEAL briefer might crack a joke about the guy with the weak bladder. Okay, we're going to patrol in here about two clicks. This is where Jimbo will pee the first time. Then over here, this is where Jimbo will pee the second time. Now there were no jokes. We kept our mouths shut. After the 1980 failed attempt to rescue 53 American hostages at the American embassy in Iran, 
it became clear that the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines couldn't work together effectively on special operations missions. In 1987, the Department of Defense grafted all the military branches' special operations onto one tree, including Tier 1 units like SEAL Team 6 and Delta. SEALs and Green Berets are truly special, but only the best of those operators make it to the top tier, Team 6 and Delta. JSOC was our boss. Mr. JSOC flipped the chart to an aerial photo. Okay, gentlemen, this is a TCS op. Major General William F. Garrison, JSOC commander, had called us out on a task, conditions, and standards TCS operation. General Garrison had thrown the BS flag. Could we do what we advertised, anything, anytime, under any conditions, including an 800-yard killing shot on a human? Mr. JSOC continued. You're going to do a night halo onto a known target. Halo meant high-altitude, low-opening. We would jump from the airplane and freefall until we neared the ground and opened our parachutes. It also meant that anyone on land might have a chance of seeing or hearing the plane flying so close to the area. On a high-altitude, high-opening, hey-ho, we might jump at 28,000 feet, fall five seconds, open our chutes, and glide maybe 40 miles to the landing zone, which allowed us to avoid detection more easily. On a training jump over Arizona, both Phoenix and Tucson, over a hundred miles apart, we looked barely separated. The bad thing about a hey-ho is how bitterly cold it is at 28,000 feet, and it stays cold. After landing, I would have to stick my hands under my armpits to thaw them out. Because this jump was a halo, the cold would be less of a factor. Mr. JSOC showed us the plane route, the drop point, and more importantly, the landing point, where we needed to park our parachutes. He told us where to stow our chutes after we touched ground. In hostile territory, we would dig holes and bury them. This was a training mission, though, and we weren't going to bury parachutes worth a couple of thousand dollars each. This is the route you're going to patrol in. He gave us the time for a ten-minute window of opportunity to take out our target. If we were late and missed our window of opportunity or missed the shot, there would be no second chances. One shot, one kill. We stripped off our civilian clothes. Like every other SEAL I know, I went commando in my civvies. No underwear. For sniper work, I put on North Face blue polypropylene, polypro undershorts, also used in winter warfare to wick moisture away from the body. We put on woodland camis, camouflage tops and bottoms. I wore wool socks. After going through winter warfare training with SEAL Team 2, I learned the value of good socks and spent money on the best civilian pair I could find. Over the socks, I wore jungle boots. In one pocket, I carried a camouflage boonie hat for the patrol in and patrol out. The boonie hat has a wide brim and loops sewn around the crown for holding vegetation as camouflage. In a knife case on my belt, I carried a Swiss Army knife, my only knife on sniper ops. I used a cami kit, like a pocket-sized makeup kit, to paint my face dark and light green. I painted my hands, too, just in case I took off the Nomex aviator gloves that kept my hands warm. I had already cut out the thumb and index finger at the first knuckle on the right glove. This helped when I had to use fine finger movement for things like adjusting my scope, loading ammo, and getting a better feel for the trigger. My sidearm was the Sig Sauer P226 Navy 9mm. It has a phosphate corrosion-resistant finish on the internal parts, 
contrast sights, an anchor engraved on the slide, and a magazine that holds 15 rounds. Designed especially for the SEALs, it was the best handgun I'd ever fired, and I had tried nearly every top handgun there was. I kept one magazine in the pistol and two on my belt. My gear included a map, a compass, and a small red lens flashlight. In a real op, we could use GPS, but this time General Garrison wouldn't let our map and compass skills go untested. We also carried a medical pouch called a blowout kit. We didn't wear body armor when doing a field sniper op like this over land, relying instead on being invisible. If we were doing an urban op, we'd wear body armor and helmets. Each of us carried water in a camelback, a bladder worn on the back with a tube that runs over a shoulder and can be sucked on hands-free to hydrate. Our long guns were the 300 Winchester Magnum rifle. Wind has less effect on its rounds. The trajectory is lower, the range is greater, and it has a hell of a lot more knockdown power than other rifles. For hitting a hard target, such as the engine block in a vehicle, I'd choose a 50 caliber rifle. But for a human target, the 300 Win Mag is the best. I already had four rounds loaded in my rifle. I would put a fifth round in the chamber when I got on target. On my body, I carried 20 more rounds. My sniper scope was a loophole 10 power. Power is the number of times the target appears closer, so with a 10 power, the target appears 10 times closer. The marks called mill dots on the scope would help me judge distance. We had laser rangefinders that were incredibly accurate, but we wouldn't be allowed to use them on this op. Over the loophole scope, I slid a KN-250 night vision scope. Although SEAL Team 6 snipers sometimes use armor-piercing and armor-piercing incendiary ammunition, for this op we used match rounds. Projectiles specially ground to be symmetrical all the way around. They cost nearly four times more than regular bullets and came in a brown generic box that read match on the outside. These rounds shot nearly the same as the WinMag rounds made by Winchester. For other missions, we'd carry an encrypted satellite communication radio, the LST-5, but tonight was a one-night op and we didn't have to report back. Go in, do the hit, and exfiltrate. We carried the MX-300 radio. The X didn't stand for excellent. It stood for experimental. Our radios could get wet and cold, and they still worked. From our sniper positions, we could quietly speak into the mic and pick each other up crystal clear. SEAL Team 6 was always trying the latest and greatest stuff. As the jump master, I had to check everyone's parachute, the MT-1X. Again, the X didn't stand for excellent. 30 minutes, the loadmaster called. If I had to urinate, now was the time to do it, in the piss tube mounted on the wall. I didn't have to, so I went back to sleep. Ten minutes, awake. Five minutes, the ramp on the back of the C-130 lowered. I gave a final look over each sniper's parachute. We walked to the ramp, but not on it. With the ramp down, it was too noisy to hear anymore. Everything was hand signals now. At three minutes, I got on my belly on the ramp. Remembering the aerial photo from the brief, I looked down to make sure the plane was over the area where it was supposed to be. One minute. Everything on the ground looked familiar. I could have just trusted the pilots, but I'd done a lot of walking in the past, so I wanted to confirm the drop point. Thirty seconds. The plane was a little off course. My left hand steadied me on the ramp as I used my right hand to signal. Looking into the plane, I flashed five fingers and jerked my thumb right, signaling the loadmaster in front of me. 
The loadmaster told the pilot to adjust the nose of the aircraft five degrees starboard. If I flashed two sets of five fingers, he would adjust ten degrees. I never had to adjust more than ten degrees. Some jumps I didn't have to adjust at all. It was nice to have great pilots. The light on the ramp changed from red to green. Now it was my decision whether to jump or not. It's going to take about five seconds to get everyone out of the plane. I signaled the guys. Little big man took the first step off the plane, 12,000 feet above ground. We usually jumped in order of lightest to heaviest, so the heaviest jumper wouldn't land away from everybody. Next jumped Sourpuss, then Casanova. I jumped last because, as the jump master, I had to make sure everyone exited the plane, help cut away anyone who got hung up, etc. In the air, our rucksacks hung from a line attached to our chests. There was a time when I'd think, I sure hope this crap works. Probably for the first hundred jumps, I pleaded, God, please, let it open. Now I had hundreds of free falls under my belt, and I packed my own chute. Some guys experienced malfunctions with their primary parachute and had to go to their secondary, but not me. My chute always opened. I never so much as sprained a toe, even after 752 jumps. I positioned my body so I could fly closer to the landing zone. After free-falling for a little under a minute, I pulled at 3,000 feet. At 2,500 feet, I was under the canopy. I looked up to make sure the chute was okay and loosened the straps attached to my rucksack so the straps weren't cutting off my circulation. My feet helped support the weight of my rucksack. I flipped on my night optical device, NOD. An infrared chem light glowed on the back of each of our helmets. These are known as glow sticks in the civilian world. Just bend the plastic stick until the fragile glass container inside breaks, mixing two chemicals together that glow. Invisible to the naked eye, the infrared lights shone in our NODs. We stacked our canopies on top of each other. Behind and above little big man descended Sourpuss. Behind and above Sourpuss came Casanova. I descended behind and above Casanova. Our parachutes looked like stairs as we flew into the target. Nearing the ground, I flared my parachute, slowing my descent. I eased my rucksack down so it wouldn't trip me up on my landing. Little big man landed first. Without the rush of wind, his... 10 to 12 foot canopy immediately collapsed in the dirt. He quickly got out of his parachute and readied his weapon as Sourpuss came down next. Likewise, Sourpuss released his chute and prepared his weapon. Casanova and I came down on top of Little Big Man's and Sourpuss's parachutes. The four of us had landed together in an area the size of a living room. Little Big Man and Sourpuss guarded the perimeter, each covering 180 degrees, while Casanova and I took off our chutes. After we concealed our chutes, I took the point, leading us out. JSOC's lane graders were out looking to see if they could find us taking shortcuts. It was tempting to cheat. All four of us could put our chutes away at the same time without having two on security and maybe shave five minutes off our time. But it wasn't worth the risk of getting caught by the lane graders. We knew we'd better be playing the game like it was hostile territory. The more you sweat in peacetime, the less you bleed in war. The wind blew rain at us. Perfect weather to forgive tactical sins. A noise here, a sudden movement there. We patrolled a little over half a mile, then stopped at a rally point. Little Big Man and Sourpuss held security while Casanova and I reached in our rucksacks and pulled out our ghillie suits, camouflage clothing that looks like heavy foliage, made from loose burlap strips. 
Each of us handmade our suits and owned two, one for green foliage and one for desert. This time we used the green type. I replaced my camouflage boonie hat with my ghillie suit boonie hat. For clothing, it's important to blend into the environment. In urban environments, colors become darker close to the ground, so two-tone clothes work effectively. The darker jungle camouflage trousers and lighter desert camouflage top. Casanova and I checked out each other's war paint, hands, neck, ears, and face. When painting the skin, it's important to appear the opposite of how a human being looks. Make the dark become light and the light become dark. That means making sure the parts of the face that form shadows, where the eyes sink in, etc., become light green, and the features that shine, forehead, cheeks, nose, brow, and chin, become dark green. If the sniper's face is seen, it shouldn't resemble a face. Disappear and remain invisible. We separated into two teams and took two different routes to the target. Even if one team got compromised, the other pair could still complete the mission. Casanova and I stalked through the night to our objective. Each of us slowly lifted one foot and moved it forward, clearing obstacles with the toes straight to the front, feeling for twigs or anything we were about to step on. Taking short steps, I walked on the outside edges of my feet, slowly rolling between the balls of my feet and the heels, gradually shifting my weight forward. At what we determined to be 900 yards to the target, we arrived at a partially open area. Casanova and I lay flat on the ground, maintaining separation so we wouldn't look like some moving blob. We low-crawled. We had to move slowly enough not to be seen, but fast enough to arrive in time to take our shot. I was careful not to stick my rifle muzzle in the dirt, which would degrade its accuracy, and careful not to stick it in the air, which would expose our position. Remaining flat, I slowly pulled the ground with my arms and pushed with my feet, face so close to the ground that it pushed mud. Six inches at a time, I became one with Mother Earth and cleared my mind of other thoughts. During stalks, I often told myself, I am one with the ground. I am a part of this dirt. If I saw the target or a roving patrol, I wouldn't look directly at or think about it. A buck deer will snort and stomp the ground because he can smell you but can't locate you. He's snorting and stomping the ground trying to get you to move so he can locate you. Humans don't have a buck deer sense of smell, but they do have a sixth sense. They know when they're being watched. Some are more attuned to it than others. When you think you're being watched and you turn around to find that someone is looking at you, you're using that sense. The sniper tries not to arouse this sense and avoids looking directly at the target. When it comes time to take the shot, of course I look at the target in my crosshairs. Even then, the concentration is on the crosshairs. I paused for a moment, then moved again. Finally, at what we estimated to be 500 yards to the target, we arrived at our final firing position, FFP, time 0220. I pulled my green veil over my scope to break up the outline created by my head and night vision scope. If you've never lain down in a puddle wearing a soggy ghillie suit with the rain pounding down and the wind howling and all the while trying to stay on your scope and do your job, you're missing out on one of the best parts of life. Ahead of us was an old house. Somewhere inside was our target. Casanova and I discussed range, visibility, etc. We used color codes for each side. White, front, black, rear. Green, the building's own right, and red, the building's left. 
The color coding for the sides originated with ships, which use green lights for the right, starboard side, and red for the left, port. The phonetic alphabet designated each floor, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Windows were numbered from left to right, one, two, three. If someone moved in the front left window on the second floor, I'd report the window, white, Bravo, one. Thus we cut down on needless chatter, making communication concise and streamlined. It was also universal among Team 6 snipers, allowing us to quickly understand others we may not have worked with before. We also kept a log, which included the enemy's size, activity, location, unit, time, and equipment, summarized as salute. Patrol information is important for an assault team. For example, the assault team might want to go in immediately after the enemy patrol re-entered the house. If the patrol is only two people, the assault team might decide to abduct them during their patrol. Or three snipers might simultaneously shoot the two patrol members outside and the target inside. If this were a hostage situation, we would note where the hostages were, where the terrorists were, the leadership, eating times, sleeping times, etc. We were soaking wet, cold and miserable, but we didn't have to like it, we just had to do it. I mill-dotted the window. Knowing that a typical window is one yard tall, I multiplied that by 1,000. Then I divided by the mill-dots on my scope to figure out the range. A lane grader appeared. What's the range to the target? 600 yards, was my updated response. A figure wearing a balaclava on his head and a big army trench coat appeared in the window. The target, which was a mannequin. Usually only one sniper in a pair takes the shot and the other logs information, spots the target, and guards the perimeter. This time all four of us would fire. General Garrison wanted to know if each or any of us could do what we claimed. I heard a shot from the other pair. Each would only get one try. Cold bore. This first shot is the worst because the round has to travel through the cold bore of the rifle. After that round warms up the barrel, the next one fires more accurately, but General Garrison wouldn't give us second shots. Neither would the enemy. A lane grader checked the target but didn't tell us the results. Then the second shot went off. Again, my team didn't know the results. It was our turn now. Casanova lay to my right close enough so I could hear him whisper if needed. Close enough so we could look at a map together. His position also helped him spot the vapor trail of the bullet downrange, helping him see the bullet splash into the target so he could give me correction for a second shot, but today was all or nothing. It had only been about six hours ago when I was having hot pizza with my son in the warmth of the ready room. Now I was in the cold, damp woods in the middle of nowhere taking a cold bore shot at my target. Most people have no idea of the degree of training and commitment required for sniper work. The butt of the rifle rested tightly in my right shoulder pocket. My shooting hand held the small of the stock firmly, but not stiffly, and my trigger finger calmly touched the trigger. My rear elbow gave me balance. Cheek firmly contacting my thumb on the small of the stock, I inhaled. After a partial exhale, I held my breath, a skill that frogmen excel at, keeping my lungs still so they wouldn't throw the shot. I had to stop breathing long enough to align my crosshairs over the target, but not so long as to cause blurred vision and muscular tension. My finger squeezed the trigger. Bang. I still didn't know if I'd hit the target or not. 
It's not like the movies where the shot disintegrates the target. In reality, the bullet goes through the body so fast that sometimes people don't even realize they've been shot, as I would later witness in Somalia repeatedly with the 223 rounds. After Casanova took his shot, we crawled out of the area using a different route from the one we'd taken to come in. Anyone who found our tracks and waited for us to return on the same path would be waiting a long time. We patrolled near the designated landing zone and waited there until dawn. In the morning, we headed out for the helicopter pickup. A lane grader gave the code that the op was officially over. Tuna, tuna, tuna. We could relax, stand up straight, stretch, crack our knuckles, relieve ourselves, and joke around. A Black Hawk helicopter picked us up in an open field and shuttled us to a nearby airfield where we boarded a plane. After returning to SEAL Team 6, the four of us wouldn't get to go home yet. We had to debrief, then downstage our gear by cleaning it, inspecting it for damage, and repairing it if necessary. Then we had to upstage our gear, preparing for the next call-out, whether practice or real world. After three hours, our gear would be ready for when the balloon went up again. The four of us walked into the briefing room for the debrief at 1100, feeling like hammered turds. General Garrison, along with our SEAL Team 6 skipper, our Red Team leader and Red Team chief, and eight or ten other key brass in their entourage sat in front of us. William F. Garrison didn't choose the military. The military chose him. Drafted during Vietnam, he served two tours as an officer, earning a bronze star for valor and a purple heart for combat wounds. He had operated in the Phoenix program to dismantle the Viet Cong's leadership infrastructure. Later, he worked in the U.S. Army Intelligence Support Activity and Delta from 1985 to 1989. A tall, slender man with gray hair and a tight crew cut, he chewed half an unlit cigar hanging out the side of his mouth. He was the youngest general in the Army. Ever. Our skipper didn't always attend training up debriefings, but with Papa Garrison at the dinner table, the skipper wanted to make sure that his bastard Navy children looked good, and more importantly, got their slice of the pie. Our Red Team chief was Denny Chalker, nicknamed Snake a former Army 82nd Airborne Paratrooper who became a SEAL in Team 1's counter-terrorist unit, Echo Platoon, before becoming one of the original members of SEAL Team 6, a plank owner. We reported. The briefing on the plane, the parachute jump, the whole op. The lane graders had been secretly watching our designated landing zone. They saw two of us hold security while the other two secured their parachutes. Fortunately, we practiced like we operated. General Garrison said, The good news is that your sniper craft skills were remarkable. Stalking, navigating, blending with the environment, getting into position, observation, and you got off your shots. But it doesn't mean crap when all four of you miss the target. You told the lane grader that the target was at a distance of 600 yards, but it was at a distance of 742 yards. One of you shot so far off target that you hit the windowsill. Your only hope was that the enemy might die of a heart attack from being shot at. We snipers looked at each other. Our faces sagged like we'd been kicked in the gut. Our skipper's face looked about to split. General Garrison kept two secrets from us, though. The first was that the gold team snipers had also botched their mission. Their jump master failed to put them in the landing zone. Gold team snipers had to hump eight miles through the woods... By the time they made it to the target, they were too late. 
Their ten-minute window of opportunity had closed. They didn't even get off a shot. The second secret? The General's own Delta Force had failed, too. An even larger problem existed. SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force had been run as two separate entities. Why should SEAL Team 6 take down an aircraft on a runway when Delta does it better? Why should Delta take down a ship underway when SEAL Team 6 does it better? The most glaring example of this larger problem arose when Delta had one of several mishaps with explosives. A Delta operator put an explosive charge on a locked door to blow it open. He was using an Australian mouse. One slap initiates the five-second timer, which, after five seconds, detonates the blasting cap. The blasting cap makes a small explosion that detonates the larger explosion of the door charge. Unfortunately, the small explosion blew straight through the timer and immediately detonated the larger charge, blowing off the Delta operator's fingers. Even though nobody does explosives better than SEAL Team 6, the most high-tech, state-of-the-art, you-only-thought-you-knew-about-explosives type of team there is. We even have our own special explosive ordnance disposal unit that does only explosives. SEAL Team 6 trained and operated separately from Delta. General Garrison also understood that SEAL Team 6 and Delta were going to have to get realistic about our capabilities. He spoke with a Texas drawl. I don't care what you can do some of the time. I want to know what you can do every time, anywhere in the world, under any conditions. That's what you had to love about Garrison. SEAL Team 6 and Delta would need to learn to play together and face a reality check, especially if we were going to survive one of the bloodiest battles since Vietnam. And that battle lay just around the corner. And that was Chapter 2, One Shot, One Sill, from SEAL Team 6 by Howard Wasden. Back in a minute. Cheers to the wish you were here, but you're not, cause it's dreams, 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 dreams
Thank you, thank you. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all of the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. And until next time, be honest, be smart, be beautiful, and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.